also want to not stutter saying my name like I did last episode. This is going to be great. Welcome to The Common Law, Minnesota's best and only podcast about the Minnesota Supreme Court. My name is Mark Thompson, former clerk for Justices Lillehab and McCabe. And my name is Allison, former clerk for Justices Strauss and Hudson. We've got a case about uh, retroactivity in criminal law today, but before we do that, let's start with legal news. First piece of legal news that we should mention is related to our podcast, actually, and we want to make sure our listeners know that now you can receive free CLE credit for listening to all of our episodes. So make sure that you go to our episodes page on our website, thecommonlaw.com, to get those CLE codes and make sure you get credit for listening to our episodes. We feel perhaps as strongly about free CLE credits as any other issue in the law. That is exactly right. And related to CLEs, moving into maybe a actual piece of legal news, is this current ruling from the... Minnesota State Board of Continuing Legal Education that for the first time in its history that we know of actually revoked CLE credit. Now, this was not for our podcast. This was for a different program. Would never happen to us. So this was a lecture that was given at the St. Paul Seminary in December 2017 titled Understanding and Responding to the Transgender Moment in St. Paul. It's posted in YouTube later. And uh, the presenter applied for CLE credit beforehand and received credit However, shortly after the lecture, the Minnesota Lavender Bar Association submitted an opposition letter to the CLE board, arguing that the presentation failed to meet CLE criteria and failed to generally support the MSBA's efforts to advance diversity and inclusion. The reason for this is that the lecture primarily focused on non-legal content uh, and, in the words of the Lavender Bar Association, drew on debunked biology, psychology, and philosophy to argue that transgender people are getting human nature wrong. Mm. Not great. I've been to a lot of bad CLEs. Uh, this is like quite a bit worse than that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the CLE board did respond uh, in May 2018. They revoked the CLE credit on the grounds that the presentation did not uh, conform to the content it was approved for, which was elimination of bias. Missed that one by about 180 degrees. And also, it was 38 minutes rather than an hour that uh, was applied for. Don't mess with the technicalities of Do the CLE board. Do not shortchange the CLE board. Um, so this is uh, all from an article in Min Lawyer. Uh, and the kicker is they note that this is appears to be the first time that a CLE credit has ever been uh, revoked. But I wonder if this would have been revoked if they never posted this online. Right. Somebody had to hear about it. I mean, it certainly sounds like it never would have been revoked had an opposition letter not been filed. Right. So they're quoted in the article as saying, I thought the process worked exactly as it should work, but there's no requirement that you post anything online after CLE is administered. So did it work as it should have worked? Would this have happened if they didn't post it online? I don't know. Is this the only bad CLE ever? Posted online? Posted online. Maybe. Shocking. But good. I think the right decision was made. Agreed. Moving on to another piece of legal news, I feel like we should take a moment to quick close the loop on this Fishbach case for all of our listeners who aren't on Twitter. We didn't talk about this case in our last episode because we spent a lot of time on it in our first two episodes. And it's probably a good thing we skipped it last time because Michelle Fishbach, who, as you might remember, was president of the Senate and who was refusing to give up her seat there after she was elevated to lieutenant governor when Mark Dayton named former lieutenant governor Tina Smith as Al Franken's replacement, ended up actually resigning her Senate seat after the session ended the spring and finally taking the oath of office for lieutenant governor. And then shortly after she took that oath, Tim Pawlenty who is running for governor but has not sought the endorsement of the GOP for his run, announced Fishbach as his running mate. Dayton already called a special election for Fishbach's now vacant state senate seat, which will be held in November because her seat was otherwise not up for re-election until 2020. After Fishbach resigned her Senate seat and took the oath of office for lieutenant governor, Judge Guthman then dismissed the case because now 
obviously there is no constitutional issue and no fun to be had there. So that was an interesting plot twist in the Dusaski v. Fishbach story. Probably a big sigh of relief coming from the Minnesota Judicial Center in St. Paul, but a lot of sad faces here at the common law headquarters. One quick hit from a new interview in Bench and Bar magazine with Justice Lillehaug this month, conducted by John Schmidt, uh, who was the Hennepin County prosecutor in State v. Edstrom, previously covered by the common law. There's now uh, starting to be a, a web of familiar connections uh, among people associated with this great enterprise. The part that stood out to me is Justice Lillehaug has been on a campaign, you might call it, for the last year or two uh to increase the number of published opinions by the Minnesota Court of Appeals. Uh, You can read more about that. He's published on that topic. But expanding on what he thinks might be the cause of the problem, uh, he said, we have a great Court of Appeals, and I think some members of that court are being too, quote, Minnesota modest, end quote, about the importance of their opinions. I thought that was a very kind uh, and Minnesotan way to phrase that. It's a Lillehogism. Yeah. Any highlights from that article on how he feels his hypotheticals are received during oral argument? He says, uh, don't dodge them, folks. Answer them. I will come at you. Answer me. Yeah. Making a lot of headlines as well this past month would be the excitement around the judicial elections that are coming up here in 2018. So in 2018, four seats on the Minnesota Supreme Court are up for re-election, and we thought it might get a little bananas at the court, but instead it looks like many of the justices got quite a bit lucky this year. Candidate filing for any judicial office per the Secretary of State was from May 22nd until June 5th at 5 p.m., which is interestingly only a two-week time period. So a pretty narrow window to file to challenge these justices for their seats that will be up in November. So now that deadline has passed and we know what the field looks like and who the contenders will be, turns out uh, perennial Supreme Court of Minnesota justice candidate Michelle McDonald did in fact come back to run again, this time against Justice Chudich, who is the second most junior justice up for re-election. So little bit on Michelle McDonald here. Michelle McDonald is well known to many of us in the legal field. This will be her third attempt to win election to a seat on the Minnesota Supreme Court, but let's just review some of her highlights. Every time we catch up with Michelle McDonald like this during a judicial election year, she comes with some new ethical baggage that just makes it more and more surprising that she continues to run for the seat. Um, And it's really hard to summarize Michelle McDonald because she's just a lot. So in 2014, we first met her when she was running against Justice Lillehog. What we knew about her then was that she was a family law attorney and she had been involved in quite a newsworthy case about parental rights. It's pretty easy to go down the rabbit hole on this case, but I'll just say here that the gist of the case was that the father was granted full parental rights of his children in a custody arrangement, and McDonald ended up representing the mother who had subsequently taken her children without legal right, which we call kidnapping, and kept them on a farm for two years. That's not the weird part of this case. When she finally took over representation for the mother, she caused quite a spectacle in the courtroom during trial, whereby she had to be placed handcuffed in a wheelchair in court because she refused to appear on her own volition. She also claimed she was tortured by the deputies as they were placing her in this wheelchair after she refused to appear before the court. She also took pictures of the courtroom during this trial in violation of courtroom rules that were explained to her after she had accused the reporter of not accurately documenting the trial proceedings. She filed a civil rights lawsuit on her client's behalf in federal court against the judge presiding over this trial personally, Judge Knudsen, which was subsequently dismissed as futile and without any support in the record. She also wrote multiple letters to the board on judicial standards about Judge Knudsen and distributed these letters with these wild claims about him to elected officials and other attorneys. We also knew about her at that time in 2014 that she had been arrested on suspicion for DUI and refused a chemical test. She posts the video of this stop and the arrest on her campaign website, so this is not like muckraking information. 
In 2014, she also received the GOP endorsement for uh, Associate Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court, but it was later rescinded after the GOP, after endorsing her, researched her and learned of her arrest and her involvement in this family law case. However, after the GOP rescinded her endorsement, she continued to claim she was the GOP-endorsed candidate. She showed up at the GOP booth at the state fair that year and was publicly removed by security after being asked to leave and refusing to do so, the video of which we are obviously posting in the show notes. Despite all of this knowledge, the media coverage of her and Justice Illahog in 2014 is what I would say was perplexingly balanced. Justice Illahog did end up winning narrowly by about seven points in 2014. In 2016, she made another run for a seat on the court, this time against Justice Hudson. By this time, she got into a little more trouble. Specifically, the Office of Lawyers Professional Responsibility brought a disciplinary action against her for her behavior in that trial that resulted in her being handcuffed to a wheelchair. Media coverage of her in 2016 did detail more of her ethical history, but still, to be honest, was quite mild. Justice Hudson ended up beating her by around 18 points, which was the most stressful day of my life. <laughs> Knowing I might walk into work the next day and Michelle McDonald would be my boss. <laughs> so she's back, Michelle McDonald's back in 2018 with a few more developments, all largely related to these previous events that we did know about in 2014. First, her law license was suspended for 60 days this past January. She was then subsequently reinstated in March after her 60-day suspension period had lapsed. Justices Lillehog, Hudson, and Chudich all recused from her disciplinary case when it got to the Minnesota Supreme Court. In that disciplinary case, Justice McKegg actually wrote a separate opinion saying she would have suspended McDonald for a lot longer and required her to have a mental health evaluation based on her conduct. Michelle McDonald has appealed this disciplinary case to the U.S. Supreme Court, saying that part of her discipline, specifically the part relating to her violation of professional rules for distributing letters about Judge Knudsen that contained false statements, violated her First Amendment rights. So we can post her cert petition in our show notes for you to peruse. So that's Michelle McDonald, candidate for Associate Justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court in 2018, challenging incumbent Justice Margaret Chudich. We will see how the media covers her this time around, but given the multitude of news she keeps creating for herself, I imagine it will look a little different than in 2016. It's impressive that she keeps running given what's happening to her resume. The other thing that is interesting about this is, so she lost to Justice Lohab by seven points, extremely narrow given the circumstances. She lost to Justice Hudson by 18 points, I think you said? Yep. Not close, but 18 points is an impressively narrow margin in light of that. There's a little window into, I don't know what you'd call it, the randomness, the uh, disturbing balance of certain election results. Mm -hmm. It also goes to show how low profile these elections are, that people might not be making decisions based on all of the information about the candidates, which is why media coverage of it is so important. The Chief, Justice Anderson, and Justice McKegg are the remaining unopposed justices whose seats are up for election. We will post everyone's campaign websites in the show notes. You should look at these websites. If the past is any indicator, it is uh, pictures of the justices wearing t-shirts, uh, very salacious content that is otherwise unavailable. I learned more about the Chief from reading her campaign website than I did uh, in a year of working for her, so definitely poke around those sites for some tidbits. Uh, moving from Michelle McDonald to other wacky attorney news, I bring you a story from the Duluth News Tribune titled, Moorhead Lawyer Fights Two-Decade War on Circumcision. I'm just going to quote you some sentences from this article. If you listen to a public radio in the Fargo-Moorhead area, you may be familiar with attorney Zanus Byers' ubiquitous ads touting a small but curious aspect of his firm's legal expertise circumcision litigation. Over the past two decades, Bayer has filed about a dozen cases against doctors and medical facilities that perform circumcision. Some cases have gone to trial, some have been dismissed, other cases have gone through arbitration and mediation, and some have settled, with some money changing hands, Bayer said. In many instances, it is the parent of a boy who brings cases, but children themselves can bring cases once they reach 18. 
Quote, one of the hardest things to overcome is the notion that a man is somehow diminished if he is circumcised. It's an affront on his manhood, and some men just cannot accept the notion, Byer said. I don't think I want to offer any commentary on this article other than that it exists, and we will continue to bring you the goings-on of every wacky attorney in the state of Minnesota. I do know circumcision litigation is becoming a thing. I didn't know we had a hub of it here in Minnesota. So a new segment that we are introducing, starting with the month of June for this episode, is called Top Tyson Tweets. Um, so those of you who do not already know, newest Associate Justice Paul Tyson is very active on Twitter, which is a nice refreshing change from most of the other justices besides Justice Anderson. Uh, so we took the liberty of ranking what we considered his top tweets from June. Coming in at number four would be a tweet of his on June 4th, 2018, was the date of his first oral argument. And he writes, ready to head into my first oral argument and posts a selfie of him in his rows with Justices Chudich and Lil Hog. Tweet number three for June, 2018, is a tweet that got a lot of play on Twitter. I would dare to say undeservingly so. (laughs) Coming from Allison, who has a lot of grievances about the amount of attention that she receives on Twitter. So on June 15th, 2018, Justice Thiessen tweets, Zipper merge, people. Overcome your Minnesota instincts. With all this construction, it will make all our lives easier. That tweet received 45 retweets and 269 likes. 269 likes. It's not that good of a tweet, people. He's famous now. Um, At number two is a collection of tweets having to do with the NBA Finals. Uh, I am a big fan of sports hot takes, and I am very excited that Paul Thiessen is in the business of hot takes about sports. Uh, So we're going to do three tweets uh, grouped together. Uh, is number two. Uh, one, who thinks the three-pointer has ruined basketball? All right, that's that's start. We're getting warm. Two, these refs should not get paid. They're terrible. Getting hotter, that's fairly hot. That's fairly hot. Three, this Warriors team are the most arrogant jerks in sports. Fire. White hot. It is very impressive that that is not the number one tweet in Tyson tweets this month. However, uh, there is one better. Tweet number one for top Tyson tweets of June 2018 is a reply of Justice Tyson to the hit podcast, The Common Law, responding to the tweet where we announced our May episode and Justice Tyson writes, quote, glad you made it. Classy, brief, everything you wanted to tweet. Can't decide if it's sincere. Gonna take it as sincere. It would be crushing if it was our death. It would be crushing. Hard to say. Time will tell how he truly feels about this podcast. We've got a couple other cases to bring you this month. Um, One, not from the Minnesota Supreme Court, but a uh, Minnesota-affiliated case. This was at the United States Supreme Court. Uh, You may have heard of it. It's a lesser uh, high court with uh, two more justices to make up for uh, intellectual deficiencies compared to the Minnesota Supreme Court. No one's perfect. They have an office uh, somewhere on the East Coast. This is a case called Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky. Uh, arising out of conduct that actually took place all the way back in the 2010 election. Uh, It centered around a Minnesota state law that prohibited individuals, including voters, from wearing, quote, political badge, political button, or other political insignia, end quote, inside a polling place on election day. Um, So the ultimate holding of the case is that um, such restrictions are not per se uh, impermissible under the First Amendment, but that Minnesota's Law had language that was uh, too vague and uh, too broad to survive. And so the court recommended that Minnesota revise their law in accordance perhaps with other states who have similar laws that are, are more specific. The thing I wanted to note from the opinion, this is a Justice Roberts' opinion, and I thought there were a couple really nice paragraphs uh, just about democracy. So I'm going to read them to you. We see no basis for rejecting Minnesota's determination that some forms of advocacy should be excluded from the polling place to set it aside as an island of calm in which voters can peacefully contemplate their choices. 
Casting a vote is a weighty civic act, akin to a jury's return of a verdict or a representative's vote on a piece of legislation. It is a time for choosing, not campaigning. The state may reasonably decide that the interior of the polling place should reflect that distinction. To be sure, our decisions have noted the non-disruptive nature of expressive apparel in more mundane settings. But those observations do not speak to the unique context of a polling place on election day. Members of the public are brought together at that place at the end of what may have been a divisive election season to reach considered decisions about their government and laws. The state may reasonably take steps to ensure that partisan discord does not follow the voter up to the voting booth and distract from a sense of shared civic obligation at the moment it counts the most. I thought uh, that was a really uh, lovely and uh, wise summary of American elections. This came uh, in a published opinion mere days after the U.S. Supreme Court allowed the state of Ohio to aggressively purge its voting rolls despite fairly clear malicious intent. So uh, I definitely don't mean to say that that court is a beacon of democracy, but uh, occasionally has its moments. Um, reflecting on Minnesota elections in particular mm -hmm. appears to have brought out the best in them. One more thing that I found interesting from this case actually comes from the dissent, written by Justice Sotomayor, joined by Justice Breyer, is actually they dissented, in, uh, they dissented specifically saying that the court should have actually asked the Minnesota Supreme Court to rule on a definitive interpretation of the law before striking it down as unconstitutional. So I appreciated that little nod to the possible and even likely superior interpretation of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Preach, uh, Justice Sotomayor spoke at Northrop Auditorium uh, back in October of 2016. I was there. Clearly learned a little bit well, she was here. the wisdom of Minnesotans. So moving on to what we normally do, which is resulted cases. Today we report that as of the recording of this episode, no more cases that we have discussed previously on this podcast have resulted since our May episode. So hurry up over there. Can't imagine what else I could possibly be doing. For those keeping track at home, we are still waiting for these cases. State v. Decker, which was the dick pic case that we discussed in our first episode. Christensen v. Healy, about standards for modification of parenting time that we discussed in our second episode. State v. Edstrom, about the constitutionality of dog sniffs at an apartment door, which was our featured case from our second episode, and in Remarriage of Gill, about the dissolution of a gelato empire that Dean Phillips almost ruined. That was our featured case from our third episode. <laughs> we will keep you updated on when those cases result. Moving on to our case-in-chief, this is Johnson v. State, and I'll just uh, give you the facts quick. In 2009, uh, law enforcement stopped Mark Johnson's vehicle for having expired tabs, and during the stop, Johnson admitted that he had been drinking alcohol. He then failed a field sobriety test and refused a preliminary breath test. So they arrested him, and later, Johnson refused to have his blood or urine tested for alcohol. He was not offered a actual breath test at that point. So he was charged with one count of refusal to submit to a chemical test. That's an independent charge from a DUI. Uh, the, the crime he was charged with was refusing to submit to the chemical test, which will be important. The district court sentenced Johnson to a 48-month prison term, but they stayed the actual prison sentence and instead uh, gave him seven years of probation. Uh, about five years later, on June 20th, 2014, while he was still on supervised probation, Johnson was pulled over for playing loud music and using his turn signal improperly. He once again admitted he'd been drinking and once again failed field sobriety tests. Police transported him to jail, and a preliminary breath test showed that he had a 0.109 blood alcohol level. Again, he refused to take a blood or urine test, and again, he was charged with test refusal. Again, he was not offered a breath test. Johnson pled guilty to test refusal again, and the district court executed the 48-month prison sentence that had previously been stayed, so he's going to jail now. On April 23rd, 2015, uh, under the plea agreement, the district court convicted him of test refusal and sentenced him to 51 months in prison. 
In 2016, he filed a couple petitions for post-conviction relief, one for each of those convictions from 2009 and 2015, uh, arguing that recent cases in the Minnesota Supreme Court had created a substantive rule with retroactive effect, and because of that, his convictions should be vacated. Uh, this was appealed. The Court of Appeals ruled that the new rule from the Minnesota Supreme Court was not retroactive, and so Johnson had to remain in jail. Johnson appealed that decision to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Let's first talk quickly about the law that forms the basis for this case before we get into what the parties are arguing on the basis of that law. So first, it's probably important to talk quickly about Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson, and then we can talk quick about retroactivity. So Birchfield v. North Dakota was a U.S. Supreme Court case from 2016. It was the named case in three companion cases there at the U.S. Supreme Court that term. One of the non-named companion cases was Bernard v. State from the Minnesota Supreme Court. So a unique Minnesota tie in there. The Minnesota Supreme Court has been very invested in wrestling with the issues that are presented in this case. So in Birchfield, the United States Supreme Court held that a warrantless blood test violated the Fourth Amendment due to the intrusive nature of that blood draw. So that was Birchfield in 2016. Moving on to Thompson and Trahan. The Minnesota Supreme Court issued State v. Trahan and State v. Thompson, both also in 2016, applying the Birchfield ruling to Minnesota cases involving warrantless test refusals. Trahan was a blood test refusal case, and Thompson was a urine and blood test refusal case. So Thompson did go a little bit farther than Birchfield and lumped urine and blood tests together as the chemical tests that violate the Fourth Amendment when conducted without a warrant, whereas Birchfield at the U.S. Supreme Court never addressed urine. I thought the the facts of Trahan are a little bit interesting. Um, So Trahan was a suspected drunk driver, and he submitted to a warrantless urine test. Um, He said that the sample was diluted because he had recently received IV fluids at the ER. However, at the time, the officer told Trahan that the urine sample, quote, doesn't look right and accused Trahan of tampering with it. So the officer uh, requested that Trahan submit to an additional blood test, having already done a urine test. Trahan refused. So I, I just thought that was interesting because I think the a temptation is to think that whenever somebody refuses these tests, uh, it's just an obvious sign of guilt. Not always so. So the Supreme Court then, in those two cases, ruled that because these warrantless chemical tests are unconstitutional, the statute then in Minnesota making it punishable to refuse those tests is also unconstitutional as it relates to blood and urine. So importantly, again, Birchfield, Thompson, and Trahan did hold that breath tests are perfectly permissible during a roadside stop without a warrant. However, as we noted, Johnson was never offered these formal breath tests. So this case is about blood and urine tests, which both the U.S. Supreme Court and the Minnesota Supreme Court have ruled unconstitutional without a warrant, absent a warrant exception. So those are the kind of substantive background uh, that's going to underlie this case. The like legal rules that are important here come from a United States Supreme Court case called Teague v. Lane. Um, And that case basically defines how we determine whether a new rule is retroactive. And it basically says that we don't, except for in two circumstances. Uh, And that's whether the rule is substantive, uh, those always are applied retroactively, or they are watershed rules of criminal procedure. So uh, just to briefly define what those mean, A substantive rule is one that prevents a person from facing a punishment for conduct that is no longer criminalized. Uh, In other words, it narrows the scope of a criminal statute by interpreting its terms. Uh, By contrast, a procedural rule uh, regulates only the manner of determining the defendant's culpability. Um, So the uh, fundamental case in that category is Gideon v. Wainwright, which established a universal right to counsel in criminal proceedings. Um, notably, that is, I think, the only uh, watershed criminal rule, rule of criminal procedure uh, that the Supreme Court of the United States has permitted. Um, so it shouldn't surprise you that, the, that Johnson here is arguing uh, that this is a substantive rule because it is nearly impossible to get a court to agree that something is a watershed rule of criminal procedure. 
two things that I think we should quickly mention about the retroactivity framework from Teague v. Lane in 1989 is that was a U.S. Supreme Court case. Um, So the Minnesota Supreme Court adopted that same framework to its application of the retroactivity doctrine in a state called Danforth v. State in 2009. So that's why we're using Teague, which is a federal case, as in the Minnesota Supreme Court because the Minnesota Supreme Court has said we will adopt that retroactivity framework. Um, And I... Additionally, I think it's interesting to note that the Minnesota Supreme Court has not found a rule to be substantive, meaning it would apply retroactively, since it adopted this T retroactivity framework in Danforth in 2009. So moving on to the primary arguments that the parties are making. So Johnson is obviously arguing that this is both a new rule and this is a substantive rule, which means according to Teague and Danforth, it should apply retroactively to his conviction. So the framing that Johnson sets is this. I was jailed because I refused a warrantless chemical test, which is now known to be unconstitutional. If I refused a warrantless chemical test now, the state can't punish me. So because Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson alter the conduct that is punishable by the state, this is a substantive rule that should apply retroactively. Analysis of Supreme Court jurisprudence demonstrates that Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson announced a new rule of law. We know this because under the facts alleged in the complaint, both complaints, if we take them all as true, Johnson is still not guilty of a crime. It narrowed the scope of the statute because before Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson, anyone who refused a search, any search, any chemical test, whether that was urine, blood, or breath, whether there was a warrant, whether there was a warrant exception, anyone who refused that test could be charged and convicted of test refusal. And so the crux of this is, can Johnson be convicted of refusing a warrantless test? The answer is no. So conversely, the state then agrees that this is actually a new rule, but they say it's merely procedural. The fundamental flaw with Appellant's argument on both the substantive exception and the forfeiture issue is that Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson did not alter the range of private individual conduct that the law punishes, nor did it create a new, clearly defined class of people that the law cannot punish. So the framing the state sets is clearly a little different. Instead of framing the conduct as refusal of a warrantless chemical test, the state kind of zooms back a bit and actually says the conduct is simply refusing an unconstitutional test. And refusing an unconstitutional test was permissible before Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson, and is permissible now. So really, this didn't change anything. That conduct, refusing an unconstitutional test, is still permissible. The state's brief says, at its core, Birchfield stands for an unremarkable proposition. A person may not be criminally prosecuted for refusing to submit to unlawful test. An unconstitutional search, you can never be prosecuted for refusing that. That that hasn't changed in that respect. Before Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson, it would have been um, permissible to refuse an unconstitutional search, just like it is now. What the new rule has established is basically the interpretation or meaning of the Fourth Amendment and what falls into that category of unconstitutional search. So a different way that the state presents its argument is by saying that all the that Birchfield and Trahan and Thompson accomplish is requiring that police follow a different procedure when administering a chemical test. That what a substantive change in the law is, is something that applies to the person committing the conduct, not the police. And what Birchfield is, is just regulating what cops have to do, not what Johnson was doing. Uh, And Justice Hudson uh, was cued into that. Counsel, I want to pick up where you actually started out. I think your your, uh, position was that um, uh, Birchfield narrowed the scope uh, because pre-Birchfield, any test, whether it was blood, breath, urine, whatever, whether they had the police officers had a warrant or they didn't, whether there were exigent circumstances or there weren't, test refusal was a crime. Now, police, at least with respect to blood and urine, have to either have a warrant or find exigent circumstance or some other exception. So that, that's what I heard you say. But I'm wondering, though, it, it seems to me, though, the state is, is arguing that's really not a narrowing of the scope of the statute. What that is is a change in police procedures. Police now, where they didn't have to get a warrant before, now they do if they want to test blood or, or urine. And that's simply a matter of what the police are required to do. Why isn't that a procedure? That seems to smack of procedure. 
You didn't have to do it before, you now you do. So Johnson disagrees with that framing, as you might expect. Um, Johnson's saying that before Birchfield, Trahan, Thompson, a person could be convicted if he refused a breath test, a blood test, or a urine test. Full stop, end of sentence. Now, a person can be convicted if he refuses a breath test or if he refuses a blood or urine test that is supported by a warrant or an exception to the warrant requirement. So I think the way that they're understanding it is uh, the private citizen who is potentially subject to the statute faces a different factual scenario when making a choice about whether to refuse. Thus, it's that person's decision um, that's being affected by the case, not just the police's conduct. And one other way, too, I think that the attorney for Johnson chose to answer this question is to say, even though it does change police procedure a little bit, that alone is not enough to move the rule from a substantive rule to procedural rule, because substantive rules can still encompass some procedural components without negating the fact that they are substantive. It does involve a procedural component, and that's okay. In Roman Nose and Chambers, Justices Anderson and Lillehag uh, filed opinions hoping that the United States Supreme Court would take on the question of whether a rule that seems to have substantive and procedural components can be substantive. The United States Supreme Court did that in Montgomery. They did that in Welch. And in both of those cases, both of those rules in Montgomery and Welch involved procedure and substance. But because it created a class of people whose conduct is no longer criminal, the rules in, in Montgomery and Welch were substantive. I think the chief also weighs in on the same point that Justice Hudson was making, that the retroactivity analysis focuses on, if, if it's truly to be retroactive, it should focus on the fact that it's the defendant's conduct that is being changed by the new rule versus law enforcement. And the chief makes this point and then is challenged on that by newest member of the court, Justice Paul Thiessen. But at bottom, isn't, isn't the United States Supreme Court precedent on retroactivity, doesn't it focus, uh, when it looks at whether the rule is retroactive or not, isn't the focus really on the defendant's conduct? And in, in the cases where the court has given retroactive application, the focus of the rule has been the defendant's conduct. Examining, did the defendant merely, did the defendant merely possess the gun or did the defendant use the gun? Here, we're not examining anything about, under Birchfield, we're not examining anything about the defendant's conduct. So I'm just wondering if that isn't a material difference in terms of the retroactivity question. There's nothing about your client that's at issue under Birchfield. All that's at issue is what the cops did. And so here, it's refusal to submit to an unconstitutional test. That's Correct. The that's the conduct. Absolutely. So already a little uh, crosstalk there with the chief and Justice Paul Thiessen. Yeah, Justice Thiessen notably was not afraid to follow up quickly on questions by other members of the court that I think he felt uh, were missing the point. Um, he jumped right in. He did. So another aspect to the state's argument that we will touch on quickly before we move on to some other interesting parts from oral argument is the state also tries to take the court down the road of what would happen if they ruled that Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson applied retroactively. Specifically, the state was kind of painting a picture of the parade of horribles that would ensue regarding relitigating every single case. The state points out in its brief that each case would need to essentially be re-examined to ensure that when the warrantless chemical test was refused and someone was prosecuted that for that refusal, there were no valid warrant exceptions that would have existed and made it permissible, specifically the warrant exception for exigency. The state says, for this reason alone, it cannot be retroactive. And if it was retroactive, it would be a nightmare. In all of these cases, because there was never, by, by this I'm talking, by all of these cases I'm referring to this, as well as all the cases that are also pending before this court that have been stayed for this one, um, the record is not developed on the um, issue that you would need in order to determine whether or not someone belonged to the class. So this kind of dovetailed into a lot of crosstalk between the justices about do we have enough information in this case from the complaint and the record to establish whether in Johnson's case, where there was no warrant, a valid warrant exception existed. This convo got quite a bit heated and particularly Justice Anderson, who popped in only for discussion of this point during our argument and none others, 
as well as Justice Thiessen, had quite a bit to say on this question. There were no exigent circumstances in this case. There... How do we know that? Because your client pleaded guilty. First, the complaint, which is in the realm of good policing, is supposed to include all the relevant facts. We see no hints of this. Similarly, were there exigent circumstances, they, would, they could have been developed at the post-conviction level, and they would have been in the complaint. But, counsel, wouldn't you agree that generally if there's, you put the basic allegations in the contents of the complaint, they don't put every single, every single allegation, they cover the generalities, and then if, you, if it actually goes to trial, that is obviously further developed. So I don't think that that's completely fair to say that, because why would the state develop the record further if there is an agreement that the defendant's going to plead guilty? That's true, Your Honor. However, the complaint should have enough that we can tell the situation of what's going on. No, but, uh, but counsel, there, there isn't a requirement that there be enough there for us to determine what is going on. There's a reason for them to tell us that there were exigent, or to tell the world that there were exigent circumstances. It was a completely irrelevant issue at that point. So then after a lot of back and forth in the rebuttal, Johnson's attorney got up and mentioned that in Trahan, the court made the decision not to remand back for more fact-finding to determine whether a warrant exception existed, making the argument that the court has already followed this course. And Justice Thiessen, who obviously was not there when Trahan was decided, got quite frustrated at the fact that it was seemingly impossible for the court to do this despite it already having done this. Was Trahan a, a guilty plea? Trahan was a guilty plea. And how did the court in Trahan, this court, decided on some facts that there were no exigent circumstances? Were those laid out in the complaint? One of the two cases, though, we decided something didn't have to get remanded because we had enough information in front of us. That would have been Trahan. Right. So what I'm saying is someone somewhere had enough facts to make that decision so this court could decide that, right? Either in the complaint or in the... In the record. So that's been done. So I just absolutely love newest justice on his first day of oral argument saying someone looks at colleagues somewhere looks at colleagues has already done this so why do we continue to fight about that so some sass coming from the uh the left side of the bench there or the right if you're counsel arguing so this was justice Tyson's first oral argument as an associate justice of the minnesota supreme court um, and he was certainly very active in oral argument, which, I mean, the, the seat that he now occupies was previously occupied by another active questioner. So it is just fine, I think, that Justice Thiessen is similar in that regard. And we'll continue to watch how he fits in with the current justices and how the court adjusts to him and his style of questioning. Any other interesting tidbits from oral argument, Mark? Yeah, um, I think getting back to the main question in the case of whether this is a substantive rule, uh, one way that courts have looked at this in the past is did the decision creating the new rule uh, actually alter the elements that have to be proven by the state? And Justice Lillehaug uh, jumped onto that bandwagon in a couple clips that we'll play for you. Counsel, do you agree that the elements of the crime of test refusal have changed in light of McNeely, Birchfield, Tran, and Thompson? I do not. Well, the statute before said it had three elements, assuming probable cause. It's a crime for any person to refuse to submit, number two, to a chemical test, three, of the person's blood, breath, or urine. Those aren't the elements of the crime today, are they? They can't be. Judge, or J Justice, I'm sorry. Um, juries aren't asked. Uh, fact finders aren't asked to find out if there are exigent circumstances or if there's a recognized exception to the warrant requirement. If there's issues in the, in the aftermath of Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson that need to be litigated, those are done in pretrial motions just like any Fourth Amendment do, do issue. Do you agree that the legislature has changed the elements of test refusal in light of these legal developments? I do not. I agree that they have modified the language to try to help law enforcement as it's trying to um, figure out what to do in light of these decisions and also to process cases. So I think you can see Justice Lillehaug feels like this isn't a point that the state can really contest, uh, and yet it is contested. Um, and, and so he gets a second word in, um, and as you'll see, that's not the last that he's going to uh, hear about it. Counsel, let me go back to the, uh, my question about the elements of the crime. Mm -hmm. um, if you were taking a guilty plea today 
for a test refusal involving a blood test. Wouldn't, at the guilty plea hearing, wouldn't the element need to be established that the blood test was required by a search warrant or there was a valid exception to the search warrant? Is it, wouldn't that be an element that you would have the defendant um, agree to? Um, I, I, I think that uh, that question is as fair game today as it was before, um, Your, Your Honor. Well, I, I, I actually, think that it's not fair game anymore because under 169A20 subdivision 2, it says the elements uh, with regards to blood and urine would be as required by a search warrant. So Justice Lilhog is, is right on the facts there. The Minnesota legislature did literally amend the statute at issue here following these cases. And you can see the state saying, oh, you know, it's an amendment uh, kind of without a difference. And uh, it's not a, an amendment of one of the fundamental elements, but that's an uphill battle when uh, a case happens and the legislature feels that case was momentous enough to require literally changing the words of the statute. Hard to argue that the statute means exactly the same thing. True. So the final thing I think that would be interesting to highlight from oral argument is that a threshold question in a retroactivity analysis is that the case that the litigants are seeking to apply retroactively must be a must announce a new rule. And here it's interesting because both parties agree that Birchfield, Trahan, and Thompson were new rules. But obviously the court can't simply accept the party's formulation on that question of law just because they agree on that interpretation. So the court tries at various points to get the attorneys to articulate why this is a new rule and not merely an application of an old rule to new facts, which would then not apply retroactively. The court is left a little wanting on that question. Just to follow up though on Justice Lillehog's question, in terms of this, whether this is actually a new rule, I mean, it seems like the analysis in Birchfield is simply applying the general Fourth Amendment jurisprudence in a new area. I mean, jurisprudence that we've had for decades. So can you kind of, not even comparing necessarily to McNeely, but can you just analyze or give us your sense of why do you think this is a new rule as opposed to just being an application of an old rule? Absolutely. To an extent, we uh, did not brief that. I would be happy to provide the court with supplemental briefing should the court request that. How, how do we get to the question of whether it's substantive, though, if we don't decide whether it's a new or an old rule? You don't, you don't have to answer that. Request supplemental briefing. So Johnson's attorney doesn't seem to have prepared a really satisfying answer or really any answer at all to the question of why this is a new rule. So Justice Lillehog later tries to get the state to weigh in on why this is a new rule that would be eligible to apply retroactively. Counsel, before you get into that argument, um, I'd like to ask if you could touch on the question of whether Birchfield was a new rule. Sure. Um, it's, it looks like the state concedes that it's a new rule. Tell, tell us why. We agree with the new rule for some of the same reasons that Ms. Surges said earlier, which is um, that uh, there was no precedent at the time that Birchfield came out that dictated um, the decision that it issued. So the attorney for the state does have an answer based in precedent for why this is a new rule, but again says it should not apply retroactively because it's procedural. One more clip on this exact point is from, started with the chief who asks about this question. If it's an old rule, does that change our analysis? And then Justice Thiessen jumps in and starts some crosstalk with her on that point that Justice Chudich also joins. Counsel, if, as, as some of my colleagues suggested in earlier questioning, this is not a new rule, but it is an old rule, how does the guilty plea factor in? Your Honor, I don't know how to answer that, so I'm not going to try. I would prefer to provide supplemental briefing simply because I did not research that. Well, if it's an old rule, the guilty plea wa waived it. But if it's if it's an old rule that makes something unconstitutional, that it takes it out of, you can't convict someone for an unconstitutional refusal, there's no crime to convict them of. So the guilty plea is invalid on that ground, right? And in part, that's because both parties have agreed that this is a new rule. A lot of communication going on on that side of the bench, given that the attorney for Johnson didn't seem to have an answer for that particular question. Yeah, the court seems maybe frustrated that both of the parties agreed and did not brief the issue of whether this is a new rule, um, but they are stuck with the arguments that come to them. Yeah, clearly an important issue to settle to determine the case, but didn't get any help from the parties there. So that pretty much wraps up our analysis of the case. Um, do you have a prediction about what's happening here? Hard to read where the justices are going to fall. 
I think if there are any votes for Johnson, I would imagine that they come possibly from Justice Thiessen, possibly from Justice Lillehog. Justice Chudich, harder to read. A lot of her questions were more clarifying on presidential issues, but I do think she did ask a couple questions that were pretty critical of the state's position. Um, But I'm not sure that there's one more vote for Johnson. Yeah, it's a difficult case to predict in part because the oral argument was strange. you know, we covered this case because it's a pretty interesting and uh, impactful right, decision about retroactivity and, and criminal procedure. Um, but the oral argument was all over the place. Um, and that's partially because it's complicated and it gets technical. It's partially because the justices appeared to want to debate things that weren't briefed. Uh, and it's partially because they just seem kind of all over the place that day. Um, so it's, it's hard to get a, as good a read on them, but I think maybe the most important fact we've said in this whole discussion is that the Minnesota Supreme Court has not declared a new rule substantive ever since they adopted the TV Lane test. This one appears to be a borderline case, but it seems like the tie goes to not uh, declaring rules retroactive and right whether that is a good reason to call this retroactive or not the justices are kind of wary of that which was mentioned by justice hudson particularly during oral argument is something that was definitely on her mind so you might be right there um so it sounds like we're both predicting not retroactive a win for the state here do we learn anything from the case today Allison? from the case today we learned to keep your tabs up to date and use your blinkers wisely and not play loud music? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Check out uh, thecommonlaw.com uh, for Minnesota's best and only up-to-date free CLE calendar. The CLEs are kind of sparse over the summer, but we will keep updating that and keeping tabs on your free CLEs. Yep. Uh, you can also find links there to subscribe to and rate the podcast. We'd appreciate it. And don't forget to claim CLE credit free CLE credit for listening to these episodes. Also check out at the common law on Twitter. We have a plethora of Michelle McDonald material coming. I am going to learn how to make gifts of oral argument. Twitter is where all the action happens. So get on it. Check out at the common law. Uh, I think that's good for us. Have a nice one commoners. <laughs>